0: Hey. Hello everybody and welcome to PBN Style. You are back to the number one podcast for Think Up, Startups, and Scale Ups who are interested in using authentic marketing to grow their business. As always, we are talking about how you can use personal branding, your personal brand, who you are, put to it. And leverage it across platforms. But today I have someone very special to the show, and the subject matter is quite serious. Um, Rhea Rodney is a past guest that has been here on TV Style, um, but she has had an experience with the coronavirus, COVID-19, and felt very strongly about sharing her story on our platform because she felt it very important for all of us to hear and understand the severity of the situation, how we can come back. Um, or at least minimize the odds of us getting ill with uh, serious illnesses like COVID-19 because, you know, this wasn't the first and it certainly won't be the last. Um, But she had some words of advice and some tips and some just thoughts on this subject matter that we felt very important uh, to share with you guys here on the podcast. So just a little reminder about who Rhea is She is a certified life coach with a specific interest in empowering and coaching children. While she is a life coach in general, her specialization is providing the necessary coaching for children to develop and believe in themselves and their abilities. These skills may not always be accessible in school, and as such, Dara Wisdom and Empowerment Coaching provides that buffer by preparing their minds and teaching them valuable skills for everyday life. As a life coach for children, she helps with their growth as they work together, nurturing their uh, self-esteem, self-talk, self-love, self-confidence, and self-celebration skills. She believes these skills will positively affect and filter into every developmental stage of a child's life by improving the way they view themselves, others, and the world. Her desire is to be that voice and support them, and support for them, which was absent in her life as a child. She connects with these children, and as a team, they make significant positive changes in, their, in, nece- in the necessary areas. Now, in addition to what I've just said of her bio, Rhea is also the publisher. She has a company, Dara Publishing, and she is the author of 15 books, guys. So we're not talking about a a lightweight here. Rhea is the real deal. And she has had this horrific experience with coronavirus. And so it can happen to anyone. Now, what I want to emphasize here in this podcast is Rhea is um, a person of color, She's had those unique experiences as a person of color who is uh, one of the higher risk communities for this virus and many viruses like it. So, guys, let's listen to her story as she tells us about her experience with coronavirus, what she felt. Um, in the hospital, how she came out of it, what doctors are saying now. So let's just really listen closely and intently so that we make sure we are um, taking heed to her warnings and really understanding how we can minimize our own risk at home. So Rhea, thank you so, so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Andrea. It's a blessing to be back.
0: Yes, blessing indeed. Um, So I want us to kind of dive right in. I want you to tell us a little bit about your experience and what exactly made you think you had coronavirus in the first place?
1: Well, first off, on March 2nd, I had a surgery um, done. So I was actually home for two weeks, just healing and getting my strength back. So I was supposed to resume work on March 16th which was a Monday, and it was also my two-weeks post-up. On Sunday, however, I was eating, and I felt a little tickle behind my throat. And to be honest, Andrea, I just thought, you know, it was the food that I was eating. I really didn't, um, like, think that was a symptom. But it went on Mm. for the entire day, and I was just lightly clearing my throat. That was the Sunday. The Monday I went to work, I took an Uber to go and to come back. I didn't really went outside much. I ensured that I washed my hands because I was very concerned. First off, this virus was in New York, which is where I live. And it was, and I actually just had surgery. So I know right away that already put me at a a high risk because my body isn't fully healed. And then besides that, you know, I... Um, I'm overweight, not by much. I'm working on it, but definitely they have me they have me listed as obese. And thank goodness, I do not have diabetes, but I do have sleep apnea. I mm. have a granuloma on my lungs. And even though I praise God every day for my healing, it's still listed in my medical chart that I have fibro, my So, oh. and the doctors, you know, they believe it's, you know it's there but i believe god healed me it's three years i'm happy i'm healthy i don't have pain but medically it's still listed in my chat so just knowing also i've had my run-in with health issue so i was very very cautious i made sure i washed my hands and i did everything that i believe was the protocol to do however i came home that monday night and i took a shower and immediately after I showered, I felt this chill, but it wasn't a normal chill. It was this chill that went straight into my bones, and my bones were hurting me. It was a chill that, even though I was wearing my pajamas, my robe, I put on a socks, and below my comforter in my husband's arm, it was not going away and We're not in winter, right? around that time we're just about I think in spring, so we don't have those severe cold weather that will make it be okay it's just too cold and after that i started feeling a little ache in my back my upper back and the cough sort of got like it turned into me clearing my throat to me actually feeling like i need to cough so around 9:30, i said to my husband i said listen i'm I feel that I have the coronavirus, COVID-19, and I wanted to go to the urgent health. So I told him, Google and see if we could get one that's open. And luckily for us, we found one that was open. So we took an open and we went there. When I got there, I I told the doctor my concerns. I made sure to express to him my health and, uh, and the fact that I just had surgery. He tested me for strep throat and he tested me for the flu shot, which, for the flu, sorry, which both came back negative. I said to him, can you please check me for the coronavirus? And I literally was pleading with him. Now, I understand that they have to follow the guideline. And at that time, this disease was new and they really didn't have much facts about it. And CDC had specific guidelines for healthcare um, workers, specifically the doctors. So he Mm -hmm. said to me, I do not meet the criteria. I said, what is the criteria? And it was severe coughing, a fever over 102, or respiratory distress. At the time, I didn't have any of that. But deep within me, Andrea, I knew that I had contracted the disease, even though I didn't know where, when, or how. So I went home, still feeling cold went to bed, and around 3 a.m. I woke up with a fever of 102. So now my fear just got worse. Around 4 a.m., it went down to 101, and by the time I woke up, it was gone. But I said, okay, now I have the fever, So I'm going to call 311 because that's the protocol they give us. Call 311, speak to a doctor online, and they will guide you from there. And remember, with this disease as well, there is no cure. So what is really, what is usually advised to people who have it, who suspect that they have it, is to quarantine themselves for two weeks and to treat the symptoms. So if you have a fever, you take some Tylenol, you have a cold, you take some cough medicine, and so forth. And if it worsens to the point where you cannot breathe, then go to your ER, or do not go to your doctor's office. So I'm trying to follow the protocols because if, in fact, I don't have it, I don't want to get sick. I called 311 and I spoke to a doctor. And the doctor told me that based on what I listed for her, it sounds like if I have it, she asked me to quarantine, but she said, I do not meet the criteria of someone who could potentially be harmed in a worse case, right? With this disease. And I was, I was hurt. I was like, she said, you're 40 years old and you're young and you're strong. And she was not concern about everything that I shared with her, specifically the fact that I just had surgery. I mean, oh. it was like two weeks. So I was very hurt. Eventually I said to her, well, I could stay home and quarantine, but my husband is going to go out to work. And if I have it, potentially he has it, he's going to spread. I was then told "Well, okay, if getting tested will convince your husband to stay home. I'm going to have someone call you back and they will direct you how you could go ahead and get tested. I got so happy and I was told to wait by my phone. But guess what, Andrea? No one called me. <gasps> and I don't know if that was a way to get me off of the phone or if, with all the madness of what is happening, if that is what, you know, it just got, you know, slept like under because of the fact that, you know, there's so much chaos. But the reality is no one called me. So later on that day, I called my doctor office. And I had a conversation with her about how I'm feeling. And at the same time, about the fact that the 311 doctor told I had it. And I'm waiting for someone to call me to, get, to go and get tested. But no one is calling me. She said to me, come tomorrow at to her office at 8 a.m. And she'll do the test. I was eagerly waiting for the morning to come. I got up and I went to her office. By the time I got there, I did not have a fever. And she said that the only way she could, she could check me is if I have a fever of 102 plus or severe cough or respiratory distress. I was very sad and I said, you're my doctor. You know my health background. And you also know I just had surgery. But she said to me, she has to follow CDC guidelines. So she did a blood workup. She tested my urine. She sent me for an x-ray. She listened to my chest and she discovered that I was weaving. Now, I don't have asthma and I've never weaved before. So this is, the, this is a sign that something is stirring up. Right, right. You know, and she gave me nebul- a nebulizer treatment in her office. At the time, too, I, was old. I was also like four days constipated and miserable. And one of the symptoms is constipation or diarrhea, right? So I was really constipated. She wrote me the prescription, one for a pump as well to take, and that was it. She said, if my symptoms worsen, go to the ER. I left her office feeling very hurt and sad, knowing, and I'm not a negative thinking person, Right. But you know, like when you know that, you know, that, you know, yes, that is how I felt. It's like, I knew that I was going to get ill and I knew that if I had contracted the virus, it was not going to just be something I could write out at home. I just knew it. So I went home, I got the prescription and I started taking the pump. So now we on Thursday, Thursday, my cough got worse. My breathing got worse by Thursday night. I couldn't take that deep breath to take the pump. My husband was at work, so I held out. When he came home around 2 a.m., I said to him, I think I need to go to the ER. I was trying to cough. By this time, I'm going to be very transparent. I'm literally urinating on myself. I have to secure myself with two pads just so that I don't Mm -hmm. wet my clothes or the bed. And as every, every time I cough, which is every second, I'm urinating I felt like I had no control over my bladder it's not that I needed to go to the bathroom but the intensity of the cough was just making it happen and I had no control so we went to the ER we probably got there minutes at 3 a.m. and believe it or not now I have a really good hospital at least so I thought. now I have mixed feelings um, <laughs> we I we got there. No, I'm telling you honestly, because all my doctors are under New York Presbyterian. So I started okay. to go to Methodist Hospital because I had two surgeries there, and while I'm there, my personal doctors come visit me. You know, if you were to go to a doctor, um, a different hospital, then you would be treated with a the doctor's day and they'll have to put your file up. So So all my personal doctors will come and see me. So, you know, I'm getting the care that I'm used to, right? So now I'm there and I'm in the ER and the ER is well organized and it has no chaos. In fact, I only saw one person sitting in the waiting room. He was not considered to be a COVID-19 patient. So he had a separate section. I could not talk. I was given a mask. I was given a wheelchair to sit down on and I was wheeled in like within five minutes of me getting there to triage with the nurse. My heart rate was like 150 to 160 because of the coughing. But my blood pressure was good and my temperature was good. So I was not considered a COVID-19 patient even though I cannot breathe and I'm hysterically coughing. Right, so the gentleman wanted me to go over to the section where yes, where they have non-COVID cases. And I'm like, you guys need to check me. I have COVID 19. The triage nurse, he wasn't convinced that I did not have it. He actually thought I had it. Andrea, my face was great. And I'm coughing and jumping out of the chair. So eventually, he told the gentleman, I'm not bringing her over there. If I bring her over there, she's going to spread it. And he asked the gentleman to come over and view me. Now, I'm already struggling to breathe. I am hysterically coughing and all dignity out the window because I'm urinating on myself. And this gentleman is coming to see me. And in my mind, I'm thinking I need to convince him that I need to go in that section to be, to be checked. So I have to become an actress now and mm. I'm trying to cough worse that I'm already coughing, and I'm trying to look worse that I already look so that he could possibly think, okay. And I did a good job. <laughs> it's funny and it's sad, but I did a good job. So, mm. so he said, okay, take over to that section. So I was wheeled over to the section where they're isolating people and put into a makeshift isol- uh, um, room that they have in the ER. I feel like my story is just so many components, it will just be too much for this podcast because we have to talk about the treatment that you, re- that you get. Now I've been seeing on the news, and of course on the news, you'll only hear all the good things all the nurses and all the doctors who are really raving about the love for the patient and all what they do. But we have to be honest. That's not how it is across the board. And that's not how it is at each hospital in the ER. I called it hell, not because it had chaos going on, but I was put into this room and I did not have a monitor and I wasn't given oxygen right away. So I'm literally there suffocating. i in this room and I don't know what to do. And I feel like I started to dare it. I feel like my condition started to get worse. And I was wet with a urine and I called oh. for help. Andrea, I was told I'm not coming in there. It was oh. a boy. I do not know who it was because I was in an isolated room. But I was told, I'm not coming in there. Do you have a bedpan? I said, no. And I was told to figure it out. And I said, who are you talking to like that? And she was like, what do you mean who I'm talking to? I'm not allowed to come in there. And they don't want us to come in there. And my spirit was broken. Because when I got to the ER with my husband, I was told that he cannot enter. And he had to leave and go home. Mm. And when I had my surgery, my husband went with me in the hospital. He slept on the radiator next to my bed and stayed with me overnight. And we left together the following day. He grounds me. He makes me feel safe. He takes care of me. And if you're saying that he cannot come and now I'm in your care, take care of me. Exactly. And to be quite honest, I didn't see who it was, but they had a very strong Caribbean accent. So it wasn't a white person, right? And I think that hurt me even more. Yeah. Because it was somebody I considered my own. So I'm in the room and then the they came and they started to do like the blood work, the doctor issue, and x-ray that they came into the bed and they did. Um on the bed i'm sorry and then the doctor came back at this point i complained to him and i was in tears he said to me he said i'm not disregarding what you're saying and when i come back you're going to deal with it but i'm afraid i'm fearful that you have a pulmonary embolism in your lungs and i really need to take you to do a CT scan he said but i heard what you say and i'm going to deal with it and i started to cry because I'm like a pulmonary embolism in my lung. You know, that's mm-hmm. terrifying. Yes. People that. So it didn't fit well with me. So I said, okay. And in that moment, this doctor became my hero. Because he said, I'm not going to wait for them to, to come get you. I'm going to take you. He unlatched the bed. He told me, put my mask on, cover my face with my sheet. He said, If you have coronavirus, it is very contagious, and whatever you do, don't take your mask off. Those were his words, and I'm crying. I said, okay, and he wheeled me out of that room, down the hall, and took me. And for that moment, I I felt, okay, I felt this doctor is really good. I felt loved, you know, but I felt scared because the passion he had and the fear, right? Right? I got a CT scan, they brought me back to my bed and now I'm waiting. The doctor went and he complained and this nurse named Desiree came and she washed me up. This is the first time in my adult 40 years I needed to be washed up. And she took very good care of me and I was so thankful and she apologized. Um, Then the doctor came and he said to me, we found a small pulmonary nodules In um, pulmonary embolism in your lungs, but it's not in a bad place, but you're going to have to be admitted. He also said that they found they had an accidental finding. And when I heard that, right away I got scared because every time you hear accidental finding, you're thinking, tumor, cancer, Uh that would be right away. And remember, I'm here with no one. My husband isn't there to hold my hands. And I said, an accidental finding. I said, What is it? He said, You have multiple pulmonary nodules spread across your lung that suggest that you have lung cancer.
0: oh you want to
1: ask me if I have or ever had cancer. I started crying. I said, No. So now I'm here hysterically choking, feeling sick, kind of breed thinking I have COVID 19, which as fast as I see on the news and on social media seems to be a death sentence. And now you're coming to give me another death sentence because if you're telling me I have multiple pulmonary nodules spread across my lungs, it's not one, it's not
0: two, right. That's it's not multiple. three,
1: it's multiple, you know? So I don't know what to tell you. I just broke. I started crying and it just looked like it was going to be the end for me. And Because they had to admit me, they need to know my status. So, and at the same time, too, I also struck a fever while I was in the ER. And, you know, I'm a child of God, and I want to tell you something. That pulmonary nodule was put there for a reason. I don't care what. I prefer to look at the, I prefer to see my glass half full than half empty. Because if it wasn't for that, I would have been sent home. Because when he went to do the CT scan, he said to me that the CT scan will show something in it if I have COVID-19, but it didn't show it. And he viewed the nodules on my lungs as potentially lung cancer. Not something that was caused by COVID, but because I had that pulmonary nodule, I needed to be admitted. Yes, I struck a fever, but either the fever or the pulmonary nodule would have done it for me in the ER. Mm-hmm. I was swabbed and I was taken upstairs in a single room, very nice with negative pressure in it. And that was when I felt like I merged from hell into heaven. Mm. I was given oxygen. I started my oxygen on two liters and I felt like I was finally able to
0: breathe. To catch your breath.
1: To Catch my breath. And I started to feel like, okay, it looked like, Things might get a little bit better, you know. Let's to do the blood work and so forth. And the nurse explained the situation with me. It's important that your viewers know. Although now it's evident, it's been all over the news that when you go in as a COVID nineteen patient, you have no visitors. Now, right now in New York, all the hospitals are not allowing any visitors, no matter what you come you came in for. Mm. But the difference with a patient who's non-COVID is that the nurse and the doctors will interact and stay in the room with them more. So they sort of have that compassion and kindness factor um, playing for them. Whereas a COVID-19 patient, even though I see some on the news, some of them say we talk to them and we stay in the room with them.
0: No,
1: I was told from the very beginning I'm going to do everything I have to do for you. But when I come into the room, I have to try to do everything quickly to limit my time in the room. So everything you think that you need, you need to tell me once I'm in. Because once I go out and I strip my PPE, it's going to take me 35 to 45 minutes to come back in. That's what the nurse told me.
0: Wow.
1: So they're not trying to come in when they don't have to. And then it has chaos going on as well. So sometimes you call them and you have to wait an hour, two hours, which could be terrifying because you're sick. And yeah. sometimes you might be feeling like I'm about to die and you're waiting forever for that individual to come in. Anyhow, the following morning, which was the Saturday morning, my test result came, it came back. It took 24 hours and I was tested positive for COVID. By this time, I needed more oxygen. Um, The sort of good news is when I saw the doctor that following morning, my concern was, do I have lung cancer? And he said to me, why would you think that? I said, well, the ER doctor told me that my scan showed that I had lung cancer. And he said, I don't see that. He said, I looked at your scan on Wednesday. I looked at your scan before you had the surgery, and uh, your scans were clean. He said, I believe that there's no way lung cancer could spread that fast. Yes, on your lungs. So while it's something they still have to rule out, he said to me, I'm 99% sure it isn't that. So at that point, my, I went from having a pulmonary embolism uh, I, to um, COVID 19 to having pneumonia.
0: Oh, uh, Lord.
1: They listed three: they said COVID 19, viral, and bacterial. So I don't know if it's three different types of pneumonias or if it's just one big ball of mess going on in my oh lungs. Oh, my word. I had acute hyposemic respiratory failure. I had um, multiple, as I said, pulmonary nodules spread across my lungs Uh, pulmonary embolism, leukopenia. My white blood cell was 2.7.
0: And it's supposed to be what, did they tell you?
1: Yes, the average, it's supposed to be 4.0 to 10.
0: Oh, wow. But
1: it was very low. I was, I had anemia. At that point, my blood was 8 point something. On average, 12 to 14 is
0: normal. Oh, wow.
1: I had um, a cough, shortness of breath, viral illness, fever, and lymphocytopenia. I think I'm saying it right.
0: <laughs> what in the <laughs> world?
1: A, but that has to do, it's part of the white blood cell. I think that has to do with the T-cell, the B-cells, or whatever. But nevertheless, mm. it was very low. And uh, it shows up high in people who have um, AIDS or... Um, these like I'm trying to think like lupus and mm-hmm. those sort of
0: yeah. that is,
1: autoimmune. That's right. I was trying to get that word. You know, Then you know, so I had a whole list of things. Then I had a mildly enlarging heart. You know, for quite some time, I told the doctor. The doctor had said to me that I that my kidney and my liver were working fine, but the rest of my organs, they were monitoring. But I think with the drowsiness, I heard wrong. Because when I looked at my encounter list, I was nearing kidney failure. So I think what the doctor said to me was that my kidney and my liver was not working fine and that the rest of my organs, they were monitoring. Because remember, when your body needs oxygenated blood, right, for your kidneys, So when you can't breathe and you can't get the oxygen, and it's so ironic because now they just discovered that all the COVID-19 patients, a lot of them, suffer organ failure, specifically their kidneys. From the lack of oxygen. Yes, and have to do dialysis. (gasps) For the most part, yes, I actually have someone I'm talking to, her husband, had to do that. But it reverses. Okay. For the most part, once they get better, it reverts. So it's a, but this disease now, it, it really destroys the body and break it down. So they're not really quite sure if all these conditions, if it's going to have after effects in the future.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: So I was faced with all these things, and I was alone. And when the nurses were coming in, it was just about drawing the blood. And my day would start with drawing blood, doing vitals. I think I had that like probably four or five times per day. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know the medication by name, all of them, but I was given three sets of antibiotics on the line. So that was going through my IV line. I was given IV. I was given four different medications to drink for the cough and one pill. Because I had the embolism, I was getting a hephrine shot every day, just one um, in my arm. I was severely nauseous at times, so I was given medication for nausea. Of course, this disease breaks your immune system, so they had to build it up because my white blood cell, everything was low, so I was given zinc vitamin C. Uh, my potassium was extremely low and my magnesium. So I was getting wow. that as well, which suggests that my kidney wasn't working properly.
0: Wow.
1: And I was also given, um, well, the normal thing for my pain, like Tylenol, I was given a multi-vitamin drink as well because they have to build that part of my body as well, right? Then um, later down, I was given Xanax because anxiety started mm-hmm. kicking in when you cannot breathe. And I think my third day there, or probably fourth day, they came to me and they told me about hydroqualoquin. They said it's a drug that had success in China and Italy and they wanted to give it to me. At that point, I really felt I had nothing to lose. I was severely weak. Um, For three days, I could not get out of my bed. I would fight to get up to go to the bathroom. I would have to connect my oxygen, disconnect my oxygen from the wall, plug it into my um, oxygen tank, and make my way to the bathroom, which was a walk, a very dark. And scary walk, even though it was literally like three feet from my bed, four feet from my bed, it was terrifying because I became so weak that oh. when I'm standing, I would shake. And three days I lay in my bed and I did not shower. I could not get up to go to the shower. And the people who are responsible to come in in the morning and, and, and clean you up or ask you if you need help, no one ever asked. Oh. So for three days, I was unkept. I really didn't care because I was sick. I was weak. Um, but I wasn't smelling myself. Right. Only to discover that this disease also takes away your sense, sense of, smell. of smell and also taste when I complained to the doctor that the water tastes horrible and everything tastes horrible, would have me nauseous. I was told that. And then I discovered, Oh, so that's why I'm not smelling because I'm urinating myself all day long. And you know, um, I'm in a mess. So my fourth day I got up and I fight to go to the bathroom and I went and I turned on the shower. I kept my oxygen on and I gave myself a quick very quick shower. I remember disconnecting the oxygen from my nose and I was so terrified because I was afraid that what if I collapsed? and I washed my face really quickly and I went back into the room and then I sat on my bed and I got myself dressed from there. Then the nurse said to me, don't do that again. I said, well, oh. no, no one's helping me because, you know, I shouldn't take the oxygen tank off and I'm too weak. And if something were to happen and I ring the bell, it's going to take them a long time to come in. So the following day, someone did come and ask me if I need to wash up and she did help me, God bless her, but that was the only time. Um, when I started taking the medication, now all, all honor and glory goes to God. It's not medication, it's not my doctor. But I have to acknowledge have where I do believe I got some assistance. Mm-hmm. when I started taking the hydroquallic because just to touch I think I should say this when you cannot breathe first to begin I felt like I had an elephant sitting on my chest oh. and I was suffocating so everyday I'm literally fighting to take a breath I think after do, doing it for some time I found a rhythm so I could take short breath quick it's faster but I found a rhythm but I had zero energy and uh, there are times when I have to cough and this cough will come from deep within my chest like it's coming from my back and it will pain me and I will urinate and I will be suffocating and sometimes when the cough is ongoing I feel like I want to black out because I'm not able to get that breath in and oh I word. was in the ICU for almost 10 days. Oh. And two days after I started to get this medication, my ability to maintain that low trust breathing, it was taken away. And it, I felt my lungs starting to expand. And it was like, if my lungs were saying to me, you got to take this deep breath. So I wow. fought and I had to take this deep breath. But when I took that deep breath, it came with pain. It came with a mm. weakness. It came with strong urge of pee, of me having to pee. And it came with fear. But I trusted God. And I said, God, I feel my lungs want to come alive. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be transparent. I took a towel. I put it between my legs. I took one of my extra sheets. I put it between my legs. And I secured myself really good and I was ready <laughs> to have a pee fest because I decided I'm going to fight. Yes. And I started to take those deep breath, and those deep breaths felt like if I was being stabbed or whatever, because it came with a lot of pain and I would start a cough and I would start a pee and I'll start a cough and I'll start a pee. And sometimes when I get one deep breath in, it, I have to lay there like, 10 minutes, like helpless, trying to recover so I could go again. And I remember this night when I felt, you know, I'm trying to stay focused and you're going to live. But as much fear that I had, I started to to get wary of that because I had to pray every second, shake my head and cancel this thought and cancel that thought. So I posted on Facebook a picture of me with my oxygen mask on, on Facebook. And I asked my friends, I said, guys, I am in the hospital. I have COVID-19 and I need your help. Please pray for me. And God did the unthinkable. He he did a miracle. And I just cannot stop thanking God. I have 2,100 followers or friends on my Facebook page, but my page is public because I'm a public figure. And Andrea... That post was shared 6,000 plus times on my page. My post was shared 6,000 plus times on my page. And to take it a bit further, God didn't stop there. My post reached all over the world. And I'm telling you, India, Gambia, Nigeria, Liberia, Canada, all over the U.S. and the Caribbean. How do I know that? Because these people were reaching out to me. Wow. They were reaching out to me and they were, they were praying for me, writing long prayers, saying prayers, inboxing me, calling me. And then, you know, they say that this sickness also make you hallucinate. I don't know if that is, I don't know if what I had the encounter I had, if that was indeed that. Uh-huh. But the Holy Spirit came to me and he said, I have encamped my angels all around the world praying for you. And I laid on that bed and I'm amazed by God. And then I saw in the room, through the walls, hands. Stretching out of the walls. The hands had the color of the wall on it. And it had like thousands of hands in my hospital room on the wall. And it was like if these hands were reaching out to hug me. It was like if these hands were stretching forth to pray for me. And I felt God's love. I felt Uh. the love of all these people. I felt the love that was lacking in that room. I Uh. felt I felt compassion, I felt empathy, I felt kindness, and I felt joy. I was like, God, you, you did this for me, you're doing this for me. Now, I prefer to think of my encounter as a, a vision from God, vivid uh-huh, uh-huh. from God, not a hallucination, because it truly sustained me while I was there. It truly took my faith up to a new level. It I truly it made me, uh-huh, it made me feel empowered and it made me feel that I was going to live. Wow. And uh, all day long, those prayers would come. And my favorite was two or three in the morning. I would get a little ping on my phone or i will feel it vibrate and I would see somebody who I don't know texting me. Did you make it through the night? Just give me a heart. Oh. oh God, I'm going to cry. Oh. <laughs> they would ask me to give them a thumb up. Oh. And when I respond and I say yes, they will cheer, they will clap, and they will that call me baby awesome. girl. And listen, I had men, I had women, and I read. Every message, it kept me so busy. I didn't ignore any of them. It didn't matter where they came from, what country they were from. They took the time out of their busy schedule to pray for me. I didn't let that prayer go unnoticed. And I acknowledged everyone. I said, thank you. And it became a job for me in the hospital. And it kept me going. And then two days after I started getting the medication and all those prayers, I got up and I had no pain in my chest. And the heaviness mm. was gone. And uh, when I breathe, I'm still feeling the heaviness, um, you know, like that ache a little bit. But it's like the elephant had lifted off of my chest. So it's like the pain was like 200 and now it's like a 10.
0: Oh, wow. Right?
1: But that's how, that's how the change was. And I remember the doctors now were making an attempt to take my oxygen off and I had three failed attempts because even though the pain and the heaviness went off, my body is still sick. My, my numbers were playing a game. Today, my blood will go up a little bit. Then tomorrow, it dropped back down. My red blood cell went from eight to nine to 10, then dropped back to nine. Then, you know, it was playing. you. Wow. And I remember asking the doctor every day, am I gonna die? I never asked if I'm going to live. I don't know why. I kept asking, am I going to die? And I never got an answer that made me feel safe. She would say to me, your numbers are not getting worse and we're doing the best we can. And it wasn't really comforting. No. It wasn't really comforting. But God came in as my great comforter. And he did the work for me and I'm so happy. And I remember I, I had three failed attempts on my oxygen and I put out a, a post on Facebook. I said, guy, pray for me. I'm going to add three failed attempts. And they went to work. Andrea, within minutes, I had like 700 and something prayer coming in and I was ready. And my oxygen went from six to three. Wow. And then the doctor came and he took me from three to one and I couldn't do it. I started hyperventilating and I started panicking and I started vomiting and peeing myself. And the reason why that happened is because he took the oxygen off, oh. watched me for five minutes and then left the nurse, I mean. And Jen left. I'm not hooked up to a machine. I don't know if my oxygen is dropping. And all of a sudden I start to go crazy. And then I started to breathe faster, you know, like harder and faster, harder and faster. And I rang the bell and I said, I panic. need help. Got yeah. a panic I said, I need help. I can't breathe. I need help. And it's taking them forever to come. I hooked that oxygen back up in my nose <laughs> because I had vomit. I had urinated. I did everything and I oh panicked, but my oxygen did, did drop. So They decided they want to leave it like that. And they tried again, but they gave me Xanax. That's when they called in the reinforcement for the Xanax. Because, you know, panic also kicked in. So it's hard to really get a good reading. And that's when I realized it's psychological as well. This disease really affects you psychologically. And it's something that cannot, cannot be ignored. The Xanax help. And with the prayers, because I, I asked for more prayer, I was able to come off. And uh, 24 hours after that, I was still weak, I was still frail, but my numbers were looking a little better. I had went through the course of the medication because I was given the hydroquiloquine. It was paired with something else. I can't recall the name right now, for six days. So I was stable more or less if it didn't have i guess all what was going on i would have still remained in the hospital for a few days probably even a week but i was sent home to further heal and recover i know our time is going to be up soon so like i said this story just so many different folds to it it really can be told like in a one hour But, you know, I credit, I thank God for the knowledge he he gave to my medical team. They work. But, you know, I didn't feel connected with them uh, because of the fact that even when my doctor came in, she would thong me and run back out of the room. And she would call me on my cell phone and communicate with me over my phone. Yes? It, it's that it's not personal it's just you know
0: well I gather they're trying to stay safe as well because they have other patients but that doesn't do anything for the patient who feels alone and isolated and afraid and anxious
1: mm-hmm. and you know I understand that you you have to take care of yourself, so by no means I don't want them to, to not take care of themselves, but they were coming in fully gunged up. At least in my hospital when I was there, I did not see a shortage of PPE. Mm-hmm. Three, four masks, shield on the face, double glove, you know, full work. So I think if you stay in the room two or three minutes, it's not really going to do much, you, you know? At least wow. it's going to help me a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a patient next to me who had a different doctor and her doctor was coming in and like standing there talking to her for like 50 minutes, but that was her doctor, you know? And I, at some point I felt a little bit jealous to be quite honest. And I felt like, I imagine so. Yeah. And the thing is- What does she
0: have that I don't have?
1: Yes. And the thing is my primary care don't do hospital visits. So when her patient is in the hospital, it has someone who takes a case. So this person, I don't know her. Oh. And I don't know if that was the, the missing link because that woman doctor that was coming in is her actual doctor. So mm. I think that it don't need to be so black and white where it's a disease that you cannot try to put the compassionate factor in it. You okay. know, because these are patients who have no family and literally died. I was told three times, that if I don't breathe on my own, eventually I'm going to go on the respirator. That's scary. I was told that my nose started bleeding. I told the nurse about it and she said to me that it's because the pressure is high. And if I don't come off soon, I'll have to go on the respirator. I hid my nose bleed moving forward. We'll clean my nose, pick it out, blow my nose, but I stopped telling them about it. And you know, God really showed up for me and I really want to, to make sure that's the key focus in it all. I think faith is important. Faith gives you strength. It gives you that strength to push through. It gives you that strength to not see the chaos in front of you, but see the bigness of your God.
0: Yes,
1: yeah. Faith enables us to tap in deep, you know, and it also allows us to surrender to give it all mm-hmm. to, to God,
0: that, that. I agree. And I, think trust. That, I agree. And I think that this is a perfect place um, for us to end the podcast because you, um, you hit the nail on the head. I believe faith myself is really the, the, the determining factor in the mental state as well yes. as the, 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 the inspiration and motivation to keep going because you know how big your God is. We yes. know how big he is, and he's going to make the final decision, not these doctors that are swarming around us. So, I yes. kind of want to leave it there for the podcast, but I know we're going to answer a few more questions. So, I just want to thank everybody for listening to PBN Style. Remember that we are the number one podcast for those think up, start ups, and scale up who want to use authentic marketing in their business. Now, I want to encourage you to head over to my YouTube channel. Um, And I will put the link down below because on Wednesday, um, Rhea is going to be continuing this conversation with some of her thoughts and ideas on how um, things are affecting people of color with this disease. We're also going to be talking a little bit about, um, uh, she she touched on her uh, relying on her faith to help her, but we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that as well as talk about um, some of the residual effects that she's had on the back end of this coronavirus that she had, So make sure that you head over to Be The Brand TV on YouTube for that continuing conversation. But until next Monday, I'm sorry, but until next Wednesday, um, thank you again for listening to Be The Brand Oh, you know what? I need to change that ending because actually this comes out on Wednesday. So I'll say this. So make sure, guys, that you are heading over to my youtube channel because on monday we started off talking about some of these things where she's continuing the conversation about uh how she relied on her face she's also talking about the residual effects of her episode with coronavirus and she's also talking about um her experiences with uh hydroxychloroquine we're going to talk about that a little bit as well and give us some final thoughts so we'll see you over on the ring TV for that.